90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Well, I imagine I'm in a turkey-induced stupor right now, but that's just a, you know, a model run, a five-day-out model run. <laughs> I would love to see, like, go back and pull audio from the intro to every before Thanksgiving <laughs> or after Thanksgiving show, because I'm pretty sure that's how you start all of them. <laughs> it's how I spend every after Thanksgiving, John. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, fair. Don't judge me. I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> oh, I, I understand. Creature of habit. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> let, let I me mean, count how many years I I went to the same bar stool at the same time, the same day every week. <laughs> I don't think you have that many fingers and toes now, <laughs> or ever. <Yeah. clears throat> not not since Three Mile Island. Oh, but I'm... <laughs> That's yeah. So no, we're uh, a yeah. <laughs> we're recording a little early because you're going to be doing fun things with family. I'm going to be doing things with family and, uh, yeah, probably not doing much over that weekend. Yes. Hopefully people are listening. We'll see. <laughs> right. Some people, I guess, have to go back to work, but not me. Well, I mean, technically we're, we're working. Lindy and I are actually both working Friday. So, Oh, that's a bummer. Okay. Yeah. Well, surely someone will be out there then listening yes. to us. <clears throat> so that's great. Yeah. Well, you know, with people traveling for the holidays, I thought it'd be kind of fun to talk about a national park that some of you might be going by. We've talked about pieces of this park before. I've been to it, but it's been a long time. And prepping the show made me want to go back. <laughs> yeah, this was on my, this is like one of my favorite national parks, if not my absolute favorite national park. And I got really excited when I opened the show notes and saw that you wanted to talk today about Canyonlands. Right. So Canyonlands National Park, uh, when I was doing my sort of desert Southwest tour after <laughs> teaching field camp, uh, this was on my list and I was very torn. I was like, I can spend a day here or I can spend a week here and not go a bunch of other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I spent a day and went to a bunch of other places too, but that meant that I only went to a tiny part of a tiny section of a four of one fourth of the districts of the park. <laughs> um, so that's all I've ever done to you. I've been here several times, but it's always just a little part. And yeah, I think you're right. I think I should next time I should make this my final destination, not in the big swing of, you know, hitting arches and Bryce and even the Grand Canyon on some trips. So because Canyonlands is really spectacular for so many reasons that we're about to elucidate for you. <laughs> you know, it's the only place that sedimentary geology is interesting. Ooh. I'm sorry that this is our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to point out that you misspelled Triassic in the notes. Okay, now I'm going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the underline and I didn't even care. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed that you knew some of these words you wrote in here. <laughs> I have Google. Uh, you set the tone for this snark fest. I just want you to know that. <laughs> it's true. So, <laughs> Canyonlands. 
it was actually created. I, I was curious when it became a national park. So I did a little mm -hmm. bit of diving into the history. And it was created by President Lyndon Johnson in September of 1964. So it's young. Uh, yeah. Do you, hmm. I wonder how many parks were made after that. I don't know off the top of my head. Probably uh, I, not I do know many. that. Well, you know, this is a place where uh, the naturalist Edward Abbey spent a lot of time. Uh -huh. um, lots of people went around this area and remarked about how beautiful it was. There was some lobbying to get it to become a park. And then, uh, see, I believe it was Secretary of State Udall okay. uh, was flying somewhere and flew over this area and became interested in it oh. and then helped uh, push President Johnson to create a national park out of this area. Ah, okay. Um, so for those of you that don't know where this national park is, <laughs> it's in the southeast part of Utah. So Arches is probably, I don't know if Arches is more famous. I feel like Arches is more famous. But as you alluded to already, John, like Canyonlands is huge. And Arches is like a quarter the size, less than a quarter of the size of Canyonlands. I think Arches is probably about the size of the Island in the Sky District. Right. Yeah, that's that's what it looks like. And and Canyonlands is, you know, connected through um BLM land through like Glen Canyon recreation area, um Grand Staircase, Escalante, Capitol Reef, all that jazz in southeast Utah that is super beautiful. Oh yeah. Uh so well, when I was looking at going to Canyonlands, part of what determined where I went was what I could get to in a reasonable <laughs> drive uh -huh. uh, because yes. I was, so I'd been at arches and uh -huh. I was doing Canyonlands and I can't remember where I was going after Canyonlands. Cause it might've been was, Mesa Verde. Yeah. I was trying to think we were on a road trip, my friend and I and our children at this exact same time, because we met up outside of Durango, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. I remember and that. Then, went to the, it was like a KLM <laughs> campground or something. Yeah, it was some really, yes, it was super weird. Uh, the Durango. Or KOA, not KLM. KOA, not yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the we stayed at that campground because the Durango-Silverton Railroad went through the campground and it was super awesome. <laughs> so Nice. Yeah, um, and then I think both of us headed headed out west after that. Cause I can't remember. I think we went to Canyonlands before we went to arches and then we headed north to Montana. So we came in from a different direction than you did. But as you said, it's partitioned into different areas. Cause it's a huge, I don't know if you have the number for how many square miles it is, but it's massive. <laughs> I don't, I will, I, don't I will look that up. But okay. Yeah. yeah so the, uh, the four districts are the Island in the Sky, the Needles, the Maze, and the Combined Rivers. <laughs> I feel like there that was a missed opportunity for naming in that last one. <laughs> yeah. It was not so creative on the last yeah. one. Mm -hmm. No, not at all. Um, okay. Yeah. I have spent some time in Island of the Sky – in the needles, 
and driven by the confluence of the green and the Colorado rivers, but I haven't been to the maze and it seems real scary. I would love to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of camping in the maze because you, I mean, you can do, you know, backcountry camping anywhere, but um, yeah, I've heard some awesome stuff about that area. So I just looked it up. Canyonlands is 4.4 times larger than Arches. Oh, oh, look at that. So a little, uh-huh. Great. Our estimate was about dead on. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, and uh, Canyonlands is 527 square miles. It's big. That's 337,598 acres or 1,366 <laughs> square kilometers. Well, thanks. <laughs> And Arches yeah. was established in 1929. So, yeah, Canyonlands yeah. is a kid compared to everything else in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, I just quickly looked up how big Yellowstone was just because that's sort of the biggest one I've ever been in. And that one's 3,400 square miles. So, much bigger. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, when you think about the geology of Canyonlands, to me, nothing says layer cake, sedimentary, horizontal definition, a deposition, uniformitarianism like Canyonlands. <laughs> yeah. What's your point? <laughs> I mean, it, it would just be another big pile of sediment. But there are some redeeming structural features. And because of some of the iron and some of the formations, you actually get some of these really nice, pretty red steps in there. Uh, yes. Um, out west, there's always that nice tan rock. But yeah, you're exactly right. The redness, because there's some differences in the porosity and permeability in some of those flat layer cake, boring sedimentary layers. So. <laughs> So you get some fluid flow differentials and some, you know, differential deposition of some pretty reds and yellows for sure. Yeah. And what did surprise me, though, is how far back these sediments go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking ancestral Rocky Mountains. Uh-huh. <laughs> and even the Appalachians, which also blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to ask you, I mean, is that like fluvial derived stuff from the Appalachians? Is that what they're saying or or it is that what It has to be. With? Right. I, like, I couldn't find a lot of information though the claims of Appalachian sediments in Canyonlands were from a very credible source. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of detail on exactly how they think they got there. Oh, uh, I'm I'm sure I mean, it's got to be zircon dating to figure out the provenance of those, but man, it's gotta be. Hmm. So why I say this with some, not incredulity, it's not super surprising, but a lot of those sediments that are Mesozoic and late Paleozoic in age, a lot of them are Aeolian out here. So yeah. yeah. And what does that mean? Big sand dunes. Very pretty. Yeah. So <laughs> we get, we get water, sourcing some of these. We get some evaporites happening out here. And we get these very thick wind-deposited duny sands. Very duny. <laughs> yeah. So you get 
very pretty sedimentary structures. Mm-hmm. And if you've been to, um, I mean, if you've been anywhere out in this area, you know, like um, if you've seen the mittens or posters of the mittens in Monument Valley or something like this, these are the same flat sedimentary rocks exposed here as well in the Grand Canyon, all of that out there in the West. Um, these are these same ones, these very spectacular, like Triassic and Jurassic sands for sure. So pretty. Yeah. You really, you learn one strat column and you're good. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot. There's a yeah. lot of it to learn, but yes, yes, correct. You can follow them forever out there, which is really cool, you know, to be able to track those. And what's really neat as well, the, older I get and the more I get to travel around the West, <laughs> the lateral facies changes of these specific rocks, you can see them because this was just constant deposition, but yet changing environments as you moved latitudinally North or South. And so that's really cool. And a lot of that you see is what you had said earlier, John, about a lot of evaporites. So depending on where you are, you get, more or less sediment, more or less evaporites as you go across, you know, the different facies. Right. As you go to shallower water and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking a pretty big time span for deposition here, like 140 to 320 million years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic. This whole time we're just dumping material. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have, whenever I talk about this sort of like you're dumping material. So when you're depositing material, you've got to have a hole, right? So you have an uplift from somewhere. And then if you're raising crust up, you're going to have to make a hole somewhere else, right? And so because of where Canyonlands was in the Mesozoic and that part of Utah, you know, you kind of had a hole for deposition and what was the high part just like John said it was the ancestral rocky mountains that were further to the east and also you know to the north as well and then even like John said too the appalachians probably bringing in on some river stuff during the wetter times during probably the jurassic or something like that right and most of the area is pretty flat-laying rock. Uh, you get rivers that have cut down through it or erosion from uh, thunderstorms, spring rains. Uh, but up towards the uh, the combined rivers district. <laughs> it's just the worst. I'm sorry. That's the worst name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see, uh, you see some... Gentle deformation, some some large wavelength anticlines. And mm-hmm. that is as a result of those evaporites, namely salt and gypsum, starting to do their thing where they rise because they're less dense than everything else and they flow just like hot air in the atmosphere. And so they're starting to convect upward and that has deformed the rocks above them. And we're not talking about a little bit of salt and gypsum. We're talking about like a 3,000 foot thick section of it. Oh, so weird, right? That stuff is so strange. 3,000 feet. That's a lot of 
salt deposition. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is the age of the salt here? Uh, let's see. So it's an evaporite. So this would be Permian, I'm going to say. Permian salt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Uh, no. I'm going to go back further, actually. I'm going to go to Pennsylvanian. Okay. That sounds a little bit. Yeah. It got, it got pretty. I mean, it was pretty dry in the Permian. So, you know, it's probably around that that cusp, I'm guessing. Um, but it was also through the... Making me doubt myself here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the Paradox Basin, which is in Colorado, in like the northwestern or western part of Col- Colorado, that's the same salt is deposited there. And there is a lot of... The Paradox Formation is mid to late Pennsylvanian. And... There's a lot of salt tectonics around here, which is why maybe, you know, you've heard the arguments between developing BLM land for oil and gas because those salt tectonics, which we have talked about on on some podcasts, because John said they move around a whole lot and you can create all these different stratigraphic and structural traps associated with the movement of that salt. And you have a ton of said rocks. So a lot of places to stick oil and gas from older formations in there. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay. Let, let's say you've got these Pennsylvanian salts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. And uh, now we're moving into the Permian and things like you said, they're drying out. So we're going from shallow ocean, kind of this, landlocked bay thing to more of a beach dune alluvial fan environment. So here we're getting those big cross bedded sandstones that are really pretty to look at. Uh-huh. My favorites. Um, Pennsylvanian Permian time as well. Tectonically is very active. Like that's when you're the Pennsylvanian is when you made Pangea, right? So Utah during Pangean times is Pangean, uh, Pennsylvanian Permian starts to dry up because everything's getting uplifted, right? And so also it is subject to essentially across the center, Pangea is a big mountain range. So it gets subject to the rain shadow effect. And so now, you know, you've got mostly dry times, lots and lots of these huge dune fields everywhere, which is really fun. And like you just said too, alluvial fans getting shed off of those Permian mountains and the ancestral Rocky mountains. Yeah. And so we're, we're doing a different depositional environment there. Then we get to the Triassic and there we're getting a lot of sands and muds brought in by rivers as we're continuing to change environment, getting further and further from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this these muds are what make, if you've been out there, did you make it out to the Painted Desert on your trip? I did not. Okay. Um, the Triassic rocks, if anyone's been out to the Painted Desert or to um, anywhere around... What's the name of the one with all the petrified wood? That's the name of it. Petrified wood. <laughs> petrified forest. 
Yes, petrified forest. Um, those Triassic muds are what give everything those beautiful colors out there, like the pinks and the whites. Yeah, so those are all your Triassic time periods, which are just, you know, a little bit wetter. You get forests in here where there weren't before and all the cool clay mineralization <laughs> that can go along with depositing a bunch of muds. Been talking about clays a lot lately, haven't we? We have been, yes. <laughs> I was just, I was just thinking. Next week we should talk about the painted desert because it's real weird. Yeah. So <laughs> then we're going to get further yet from the ocean. In fact, probably the the. I'm not going to say polar opposite because that has certain connotations, <laughs> but sure the does. opposite. <laughs> uh, and we're talking about the Jurassic times, where this was pretty much a desert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you talk about the Jurassic in the West, most everyone thinks about the Morrison because that's the famous Jurassic deposit. I even we've definitely done a show about that with right? with dinos in it. You're right. Exactly. And it's got dinosaurs in it. Yeah. So there's still water somewhere around in here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about to be inundated with a lot more water. But yeah, these Jurassic sandstones are spectacular. Right. They're just these huge cross-bedded, like the Navajo sandstone, the, I want to say the Entrada, but I want to make sure that's Jurassic before I say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Yep, it is. I'm good. Uh, you know, the Wingate, the Cayenta, those are all these huge cross-bedded sandstones that make up a lot of the very iconic features of that Western part of the U.S. Now, part of what makes the Western sandstone formation so iconic is their erosion. Yes. Mm -hmm. And for them to get eroded, they have to be higher than everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I have a really great book that's about this, but it's not about the actual landform that does the uplifting, but it's called Who Pooped on the Colorado Plateau. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was my kid's favorite book. And we actually bought it at the Canyonlands Visitor Center. <laughs> and yeah, I had to read Who Pooped on the Colorado Plateau so many times when he was little. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So the Laramide orogeny, that is how we uplift this whole region and make the Colorado Plateau. Mm -hmm. And that's the start of... Um, our current Rocky Mountains. So not the ancestral ones, but the ones now. And this is coming out of the Mesozoic and into the first part of the Cenozoic even is this Laramide orogeny. And the Colorado Plateau is this really weird thing. Like <laughs> we don't really understand it. Actually, not even most of it is in Colorado. It's mostly in Utah and Arizona, right. <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny, but Colorado River goes through most of it. Um, yeah, it's this big uplifted area like Tibet, but not that high. <laughs> and it's very argumentative over what is causing the continual uplift. Cause it's still uplifting right now. Yeah. But between, you know, the, well, let's say between the Laramide and between when a lot of these sediments arrived in this area, we're talking a long time, like a cool, few hundred million years yeah because mm -hmm. we That's gotta true. take one mountain range erode it down 
mm-hmm. dump it into the valleys. Yep. And then build another mountain range. So this is not a quick process. Think think quarter of a billion year plus or minus time scale. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the Rockies themselves have gone up pretty quickly, though. They were a really fast mountain range. And I say that in the geological sense. <laughs> I mean, okay, maybe 200 million years. Mm, yeah, the whole area sort of, yeah. Um, all these things that you're talking about that get made when you talk about those districts and canyon lands and you said everything has to get uplifted in order to get eroded. And this is one of my favorite erosional things to talk about. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> the fluvial buzzsaw. Did you make that up? I didn't. <laughs> that sounds uh, like something you would make up. I know. <laughs> I I found so I got told this on a field trip out there and I never forgot the fluvial buzzsaw. And I thought for a long time maybe the guy who told me made it up. And then So it's I, not something you made up, it's something Neil made up. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Neil. No. <laughs> um <laughs> no, Dave Stearns, who is a structural geologist that did a lot of work out on the um on the northern part of the Rockies and the San Rafael swell. And right. I thought he lied to me, <laughs> but then I found in a book, an actual, or was it a book or it might've been at a national park, an actual picture of a buzzsaw. And it said the fluvial buzzsaw is what created all these, uh, all these spectacular rocks that you see. <laughs> all right. So fluvial yeah. buzzsaw, i.e. Uh, torrential gushing of water from springtime thunderstorms and the West. Right. So as you raise up that land and you're cutting down with a river, it's that combined action that creates these spectacular canyons of canyon lands or of the Grand Canyon too, because that's on the Colorado Plateau. So it's not just the river that's cutting down since the land is still now raising up. It makes that river in size faster. And so that's the, that's the fluvial buzzsaw, but it's also like I said, the reason Canyonlands even exist is buzzsawing all these really cool features out. Right. So mm-hmm. the first district, Island in the Sky, uh, this is where I went. And you get uh, awesome rim views of really deep canyons. Not not canyon like Grand Canyon, but like mini weavy smaller canyons with spires in them. Yes. Yeah. And so I didn't realize, and I teach this because I was wrong about it on this field trip when they're saying, you know, how do these spires and all these arches form because arches to the north, but there are arches in canyon lands too. But these spires and arches are mostly formed from ice. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. Mechanical weathering. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I remember standing up there and like, Telling this, doing this huge spiel and then getting told I was wrong. <laughs> so yeah, it's mechanical weathering by ice. And so it's called frost wedging and it gets really cold in the desert at night. You don't really think about that, but definitely in the wintertime it gets really cold. And when ice freezes, it expands, right? And it just, it's in those layers of the sandstone And it expands and it just pops off sort of layer after layer of that sand. And it creates these weird, 
spires and arches and strange looking gobliny type landscapes. Right. And there is a thing called the rim road that you can drive. I really want to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> drive yeah. all the way around the rim, take a couple days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I had a Ford escape when I was out there was not quite up to the task. <laughs> I was in a minivan. so <laughs> No way we were making it. <laughs> and then we've talked about before. So I think we'll mostly skip over for, for time's sake. Uh, talking too much about Upheaval Dome. But there's Upheaval Dome. Is it a crater? Is it not? It probably is a crater, but not a crater in the sense of this is where the thing hit. It's, okay, an impactor, maybe a third of a mile wide, something like that, about 60 million years ago hit. Mm -hmm. And it created a cavity from the shockwave well under the impact site that then immediately collapsed. And as the rocks were flowing in to fill that cavity, the structure was formed, but it was a couple miles down. Mm-hmm. And through subsequent uplift and erosion, now that has been exposed. So it's not a crater like Meteor Crater. It's right. what was left miles under a crater. It's so, so now you've been here, right? Um, yes. It, the, What's cool about so you go to Meteor Crater if you're in this area too because it's not super far away. I guess it sort of is, but yeah, <laughs> so I went there to, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly on that same trip, right? So you go to Meteor Crater and you're like, yeah, okay, and meteorite hit here. But this weird hole, whose outside structure looks like that, is filled in from a its erosional features, but they look like giant shatter cones, don't they? <laughs> they do. Uh, <laughs> that's not what they are at all, but it's just the way it looks and it's super cool. <laughs> and, you know, there are some other ideas about maybe it's basically salt dome, but eh, probably not. Um, mm-hmm. Or even a crypto volcanic structure. That's, that was the, <laughs> that was the most accepted thing for a long time. Man, those words <laughs> are like the shoulder shrug of geology. Absolutely. <laughs> what is I might be cryptovolcanic. Uh, uh, so, all that means is it looks like a volcano, but there's no volcanic rocks. That's what exactly volcanic means. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Because so, I mean it does. The most striking thing about this to me was you're in this super well ordered, layered, plain old layer cake area. And then like you literally turn the corner. <laughs> And you see things that are dipping 70 to 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something it's crazy. Something happened here. <laughs> and it's not big. I mean, no, you know, we're talking a few miles across. Yeah. So, I don't oh, okay. That, that seems big, but it, geologically it's tiny. Yes. And for a, an impact, it's, you know, pretty small too. I mean, it's bigger than, it's bigger than Meteor Crater, um, almost an order of magnitude bigger, but still, it's not large. Um, I, I know you're probably immediately regretting having this, having this as our show topic, because I love it so much, this area. <laughs> right. And in my, in my office, like the one geologic map I have up is the one of Canyonlands. It's like four foot by six foot. And it's, cool to see upheaval dome but did you there are other little 
domes out there that are probably salt related and they look really similar. And I think that, like you said, that's what leads to a lot of confusion and fighting about what the origin of upheaval dome is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so we will, we, we will link in the show on that. Yeah. I was going to say, and you should totally go see it. It's like a, it's a little bit of a walk to get to the rim of it, but it's really fun. And also Arizona state has put together a really cool virtual field trip of upheaval dome. Um, it is really neat and it goes through the controversies behind it and interviews a bunch of people. Um, that's episode 252, by the way, if anyone wants to, uh, <laughs> wants to go back and listen to that one, but we can link in the, um, that really cool. It's like a self-exploring thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really neat virtual field trip. Yeah. So that sort of wraps up Island in the sky. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then this was the second area that I really wanted to go to and just didn't have time, which was the needles. Yeah. Um, So we came up from the South. I was looking at the map here and trying to recreate our trip that we came through. So we came through the needles. We spent most of our time in islands of the sky, but we definitely drove around that Southern area in the needles. And it was um, cool. Yeah. It's just all these spires that are from water going down in cracks and either as liquid or with this frost wedging process that you mentioned, eroding until you get all these vertical fractures and just these spiry things left. And like, uh, I remember standing up there on <laughs> at one of the overlooks in the needles and this mom and daughter getting into a fight, like grown daughter getting into a fight because the daughter clearly loved Canyon lands and was super excited to show it to her mom. And her mom was like, grand Canyon is way better than this. I remember sitting there like with my camera, just like faking looking through it to listen to them because it was so funny. Like they were all out fighting about it, but I absolutely agree. This is really cool because you can look down there in those spires and there's hiking trails everywhere. And it seems like you would get lost in a second. It'd be very scary. I would not do it without GPS. Oh, yeah. But man, even in down in those canyons, I wonder, I mean, GPS is pretty good now, though, so. It's pretty good. You could probably get enough satellites to not get too lost. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but no, this was, and you'd see all of these like stepped erosion features because soft layers erode out, harder layers don't. And if you get really lucky, they're ordered in such a way that you get balanced rocks where there's a mm. bunch of hard stuff that protects soft things below it. But then eventually a very soft layer gets eroded away and you get these big balanced eggs. Yeah. They're really cool. Those are cool. There's also a feature called Paul Bunyan's potty. (laughs) I don't know this one. (laughs) Yeah. So that's in the needles, which is cool because you know, Paul Bunyan never lived there, but (laughs) it's this like, it's not an arch so much it's it literally looks like a toilet seat like it's a big hole in the rock (laughs) yeah yeah it looks just you should look it up it looks just like a toilet seat so that's paul bunyan's potty and that's in the the needles area (laughs) right so 
Mm-hmm. There's then the maze, which is where you said seems scary. Mm-hmm. A lot of them seem scary. Those canyons are really deep. <laughs> and I haven't been to this area very much. So, yeah. They are. So the maze is, I'm going to say, the most remote area of the park, which all of it's remote. Yes. Um, but if you want to get away and you don't want to see anybody for a while, this is where you do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You Deep see these valleys, huge cairns, big spires, all backwoods backpacking. Yeah. Yeah. And these weird, they look like fins. You know what I'm talking about, John? These weird. Yeah. Like, that's what's so strange to me. These, these very thin like they just look like walls literal walls that somebody's put up and they're very strange and that's all throughout the maze there in canyon lands too yeah because you say well how did the erosion happen like that and just has to be slight topographic preference Mm -hmm. uh, protecting some areas and not others that's the only mechanism i can think of on this Mm -hmm. right exactly and i i thought it might be like wind tunneling or something like that but Everybody says still ice wedging and it is just some, some tiny weird concentration of a more resistant mineral in a higher spot. Strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the maze. And then the combined rivers area, uh, (laughs) probably the most boring area. Uh, It's a couple rivers cutting through layer cake. There's a little bit of deformation because of a salt dome. If you want to canoe, kayak, swim, all that, that's a great place to do it. Otherwise, everything else is prettier. Oh, my gosh. Unless you like rivers. (laughs) But, yeah. (laughs) Listen, I don't go to Utah to see rivers. Oh, man. Come on now. It's the Colorado River and the Green River. These are two huge rivers. I'm not going to let John like act like these are two streams like these are big <laughs> rivers <laughs> yeah no it is it is still an impressive area yeah 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 i mean it's not my favorite area either but all those uh so dead horse point is that that bend in the colorado river that everybody takes their picture at uh if you go right. to my faculty webpage, it's my picture too okay people <laughs> that's right outside of Canyonlands. but this the area where the green and the colorado join also looks like that it's got all those cool bendy things looking at this layer cake stuff i'd imagine if you're on a kayak this would be super fun but i never am so yeah i'll i'll take islands in the sky as well <laughs> yeah yeah now we need to go do the uh, the Don't Panic Geocast backpacking trip through the maze. Oh, man. So scary. <laughs> I'm totally in for it, though. Obviously, this is one of my favorite places in the U.S. is this area. So you're right. Now I want to go back. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue uh, talking about places we want to go. <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> but you know the, there's one problem with going places shannon you can't always take your dog you can't always take your dog <laughs> and uh that you know actually i'm gonna switch here because we're talking about traveling so i'm gonna use the uh the tsa approved carbon fiber <laughs> cowbell excellent <laughs> it's time for fun paper friday <laughs> I thought that you were going to do what I was going to do, which is this. That's my dog's squeaky toy. <laughs> uh, if I did that, my dog would eat through the door that she's behind right now <laughs> to get it. Glad you got your headphones on there. <laughs>
<laughs> oh man, that's great. Um, and as I said to John before this show started, I'm assuming Daryl sent this. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Forming the dog internet, prototyping a dog to human video call device by Hirsky Douglas et al. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we just going to let that hang there for a minute? Yeah. Forming the dog internet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so okay (laughs) as far as internet as as far as internet of things things go this has to be one of the more absurd (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would think as an owner of a neurotic dog that you of all people would understand John (laughs) my dog is not nearly smart enough to do this Um, so I had to apologize profusely to John because I was a little late showing up tonight because my dog, we were in PetSmart and he refused to leave. He was fine and walked on his leash like a little gentleman and he refused to cross the threshold to go out the door. So much so that he laid down on his back and stretched his considerable height (laughs) across the entire door. Wow. It took me 10 minutes to get him out of PetSmart. I had to carry him like a toddler, and he is 65 pounds. (laughs) That's some toddler. Literally, his legs were wrapped around me, and I said, I hope you're embarrassed. (laughs) Some poor PetSmart employee had to carry my cat litter out. (laughs) While I had this massive handful of weenie dog who did not want to leave PetSmart. So I can understand why a dog owner may want to go about what happened in this paper. (laughs) Right. So the idea was, well, with people going back to work, going back to the office after the pandemic, Mm -hmm. dogs are experiencing a lot of separation anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are devices that let you remotely call your dog and even throw treats at them and that sort of thing. But what if your dog needs to talk to you? Enter the dog phone. (laughs) Enter dog phone. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this was this paper was outrageously long to describe all this stuff. So (laughs) it was very wordy. Um, So they did some uh, some work to try to figure out what interface the dog would like. They said, you know, we we impose technology on our animals, but they were going to try to come up with something that the dog can actually use instead of just have it strapped to them. This was actually one of the research questions of the paper, right? Is that we do a lot of animal computer interaction stuff where animals press buttons, but a button isn't necessarily a thing in the day of the life of an animal. So why don't we make something more animal friendly? And they identified a stuffed animal, a ball, a, well, it was a couple different a, balls. A wooden stick, and a, a hollow <laughs> ball, and a tennis yeah. ball. Yeah. And there were like five sentences 
It might have been a whole paragraph dedicated to the stick. It is. It's a whole paragraph dedicated to the stick. <laughs> and I thought that was a little excessive <laughs> for talking about why a stick wouldn't be an appropriate thing to make into a phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> an entire paragraph. <laughs> so after some lengthy deliberation, uh, we finally <laughs> settle on the ball being the proper interface. And they use some little prototype hardware and put an orientation sensor in the ball. And the idea is when the dog picks up the ball and moves it around, it will call mom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if mom calls, the dog can either pick up the ball and answer or just let it ring. <laughs> <laughs> Much like my son. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where was the... Where was the screen for the ball? So the way I understood it, there was a laptop set up somewhere in the house. Okay. All right. Oh, yep. There it is. Mm -hmm. And the the dog, so the ball would, I think it made a WebSocket server in the ball and then the laptop connected to that. And so when the ball was moved, it signaled the laptop uh, through a Python script to, to do the thing, to initiate the call or answer the call. That's right. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Screen was placed at dog's head height, as recommended by previous dog screen research in the home's living room. <laughs> and sounds at 50% volume. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's right. <laughs> so we've got the dog phone. Uh, actually, this is all on GitHub, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. And then we get to, well, what are the results? So, you know, the first few days... Uh, like any prototype, there's some tuning to do. And the dog phone was a little too sensitive. <laughs> so the dog was mouth dialing too much? <laughs> yeah. A lot of the, the log of this day says dog asleep with ball. Dog asleep with ball. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, this is an excellent table, right? The day, the time, the duration of the event. Yeah, dog called by accident, climbing onto sofa, then went to sleep. <laughs> dog was playing with his pig and accidentally nudged the ball. <laughs> this is hilarious. <laughs> uh, this one, like it, it, this ascribes a lot of intention to the dog that I'm not sure was there. Dog was walking around, then I picked up the phone, rang me by accident, but then he came to the camera. <laughs> And showed me his toys. <laughs> How do you know he rang you by accident? Well, and then there's a uh, dog was awake and woke up more when I spoke to him. Ears perked and looked up towards the camera, but seemed sleepy. So I just said hello and let him go back to sleep. Looked like I was bothering him. Oh my God. I spoke to him about the dog park we were going to later. Asked about his day and complained at the street noise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Okay. Dog rang me, so, but was not interested in our call. Man, is this my husband or a dog? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking of the, you know, that, uh, the comic text from Dog, but. <laughs> Those are great. <laughs> so, uh, iteration two, we turned the sensitivity down, but too far down now. Mm -hmm. Dog uh, never in, calls. <laughs> yeah, in days three through nine, there were two calls. Uh, one of them, the dog was sleeping and kicked the ball. <laughs> and the other uh, knocked it off. 
<laughs> so was probably playing with the ball more than two times in those days, but it was just too insensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they made the third dog bone iteration, right, to try to dial in. <laughs> but also, <laughs> <laughs> this table is a lot of dogs sleeping with the ball as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there needs to be some more, mm-hmm. some more tuning here. Although I do like bad connection, unsure as to what is going on. (laughs) Right. Dogs trying to call IT, figure stuff out. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. So in the end, this is a dog interface. And there are some ideas about dogs calling dogs, which... I don't want to talk. I'm not ready to talk about the dog to dog internet that was mentioned numerous times in this paper. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um, whilst we aim to empower the dog, it is unclear how empowering the process actually was for the dog. It seemed like the dog just played with the ball like dogs do. <laughs> right. I think the dog was being a dog and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just think that you could have to yell at the dog to get off the phone because your Netflix is buffering. <laughs> you know, I already call my son accidentally the dog's name sometimes. So I imagine now I can just randomly yell both their names. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Either one of them to get off the Internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I wonder, too. Wouldn't it be, would it make your dog sadder to see you on a screen throughout the day and not in person? I don't know. My dogs are super not interested in any kind of screen. Mm-hmm. Like if I FaceTime when I'm gone traveling, uh, they actively don't engage with the screen. Okay. I haven't, I just got my dog, so I'm, I'm, not clear as to this yet, but I will absolutely try. Right. Mm-hmm. My bearded dragon, however, loves the phone. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I was just waiting for the, the puns in here about, was that a bell ringing or, but <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Nope. This is legit. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the, uh, the internet of dogs. Uh, I mean, it's already run by cats, so I just don't see how this is going to work. <laughs> Computers having iPup addresses. <laughs> oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, if uh, <laughs> if you've got some thoughts on interfaces for your furry friends to interact with the Internet, call you, you call them, them to ignore your calls and, and so on. We would love to hear those ideas or if your animals like to interact with the screen at all. Shannon, how can people send us their cute animal photos? <laughs> Please send me videos of your cat playing the Frisky's cat food game. It's real great. Um, no sponsorship, but please feel free to <laughs> show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Tweet us those cute puppy pictures at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You can support us too, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. 
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.